Hey, because Nicole and Steve did just a great job, maybe we'll invite them back sometime. That was good. Thank you, guys. Thank you all. Hey, just a reminder, next Tuesday is our pie fellowship. So don't forget to bring a pie, come ready to eat some pie, and just roll out of here on Tuesday night. Okay? So next Tuesday night, always the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, we're going to have a pie fellowship here at the Oasis. So don't forget, too, to bring your recipes for the pies that you make so that Regina can add those to the, to the recipe thing. I know. Wow, I heard that. I heard that. God's getting me back for the whole Nicole Steve thing tonight. That's what it is. Um, and then also a reminder, since we are coming to December, that uh, next year, just a reminder, next year, starting in 2014, we begin a 22-week study in the book of Revelation in January. So uh, just some things coming up. And uh, so I'm looking forward to that. So tonight, we're continuing in our study of the first couple chapters of the Gospel of John. And we come to the last part of John chapter 3. And this really zeroes in on the final testimony of John the Baptist. A very clear-cut testimony of who Jesus is. And it's sort of the last time that John has an opportunity to basically witness for Jesus Christ before he's thrown into prison and beheaded. So I want to read these first couple verses though, but because before we get to John's testimony, there's some other very important things going on here. In verse 22 of John chapter 3, It says, After this, Jesus and his disciples came into Judean territory. And there he, Jesus, spent time with them and was baptizing. First of all, this is the only reference in the Gospels to Jesus doing any kind of baptizing. In fact, later on, it basically says he actually didn't do the physical baptizing. His disciples did. But here's an important point. And I want to stay here for a little bit tonight, because remember, John's gospel is the reflective gospel. He wrote it in such a way that he doesn't want us to rush through things. He wants us to reflect on what he is saying and to contemplate, to consider it, to ponder it. And there's a very important point here that John makes that I don't want to just quickly pass over. And that is, you'll notice here, these two words, Jesus spent time with them in verse 22. This is the method, if you will, of how Jesus makes disciples. He spends time with them. In fact, we could even say it the other way. How do I know I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ and not just someone who's a Christian who's saved? Because I spend time with Jesus. And here's something very interesting about this Greek word that is translated in our English Bible, spent time. It is a word that means to rub hard or to wear away. Think about that. In other words, 
Jesus wants to spend time with his followers so that he can rub off on them. You see. In fact, in this word, in the Greek language, it also speaks of a well-worn path. Not something, not a path that's just taken every once in a while, but a very well-worn path. Now, I want us to think about that for a minute. Let's first of all think about that in the context of God and us. And we start to understand why it's so important for God to say, I want to spend time with you. I want you to spend time with me. Because God understands that His rubbing off on us, if you will, His his changing us, His transforming us, isn't something that's going to happen on a, you know, once or twice or, you know, some, some big moment and then that's it. It's going to happen over time, little by little, as we spend time with Jesus, He continually rubs off on us more and more and more. And the more time we spend with Him, the more He rubs the more he wears away what shouldn't be there, and the more he adds what should be there. And it becomes a well-worn path. It's the same principle that is declared in the book of Proverbs when it says, iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friends. It's the idea that in order for iron to sharpen iron, there's got to be friction, there's got to be some rubbing. You see. And sometimes, we're going to get to this in a moment, sometimes humans rubbing against each other isn't a pleasant thing, but from God's perspective, it's a very necessary thing. Just as it is that we allow Him to rub us. You see. And that's exactly what Jesus' method of discipleship was. See, and this is where the modern church today even, We've got to get back to how Jesus taught, if you will, and laid out the example of what discipleship is all about. It's not primarily uh, something formal. It's not primarily bringing people together and instructing them. That's teaching, and that's important. But discipleship is where you and I as Christians spend time with each other, just as we should be spending time with God, and we learn to rub against and rub, you know, with each other, to the point that it hopefully becomes a positive thing for both, if you will. Again, iron sharpening iron. Which now then, I want to take that whole concept about God and us, and I, I want you to pack that away and think about that. How does that change the way maybe you approach your relationship with God? Does it give you and I a desire to spend more time with Him, knowing that that's really what He wants? Because again, it's not a one-and-done type deal with God. It's over a long period of time, in fact, a lifetime of Him rubbing hard and wearing away and rubbing off on us a well-worn path. Now, 
take that same con- concept and bring that down then to our relationships with each other. And again, we find that's why it's so important that we get connected to each other and that we build relationships with each other where we can spend time with each other. How can we rub off on each other if we're never around each other? If we don't spend any time with each other? And I I honestly believe that this is one of the next levels, if you will, that God wants to even take our church. Which is why I think it's so cool that both in the men's and women's ministry and the young adult ministry and all these different ministries, I am beginning to see sort of a, a unity of this is the way we believe God is leading us. That we're trying to encourage our people to get together with each other, not in formal ways, but in informal ways, outside of the meetings of church, and spend time together and start rubbing each other, if you will, you see. Because that's what discipleship is all about. We can't disciple people if we don't spend time with them. And you and I as Christians can't be discipled by others if we don't spend time with them. And we will never be discipled by God if we don't spend time with Him. We may be saved. We may have our sins forgiven. We may have a relationship with God. But if we are not entering into fellowship with God every day and entering into His presence, spending time, time with him, then we're not giving God even the opportunity to rub on us and to rub off on us and create in us a Christ-like character. So think about that. Let God take this whole concept that Jesus lays out here in John 3, about spending time with his disciples. And by the way, at this point, he hadn't formally called the 12 disciples yet. So some of these disciples could have been some of the eventual 12 disciples, but some of these probably weren't at this point. But Jesus does give us a great model to follow. So again, let me read this. After this, Jesus' disciples came into Judean territory. And there Jesus spent time with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Enon near Salim because water was plentiful there. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because it's not a major deal with me, but I do want to point this out just because, I, again, we need to be biblically accurate and correct. Many people over the years ask me, you know, about the mode of baptism about, is it okay to be sprinkled rather than immersed? And I basically share with them, well, if you want to do what the Bible teaches, you will be immersed. Because first of all, that's what the Greek word baptizo means. In fact, if you doubt my interpretation of the Greek word, even go to a Greek Orthodox church 
And they will not sprinkle in a Greek Orthodox church because they understand what the word baptizo means. They will immerse. But another thing, just from a very practical standpoint, is this. Notice that the Bible points out that John was baptizing in a place where the water was plentiful. Why would you need a lot of water if you were just sprinkling people? You wouldn't. The reason why John stopped where he did, where there was plenty of water, is because he needed a place big enough to immerse people. Because that's the biblical way of baptizing someone. Because it's a, it's a picture of something, you see. When a person is in, placed in Christ, God doesn't just sprinkle a little bit of himself on us. He literally immerses us into himself. And that's why it's important to see that picture. We're going to come back to that concept. And let's remember something that I've shared with you before. The whole concept of baptism is a union that brings about a permanent change, which I've shared this with you before. Some of you are going to get sick of this illustration, but you all know where I'm going with this. It's about being what? Pickled. That's the way the Greeks described it. You would take this and you would immerse it in a liquid and it would literally change or transform into a totally different thing by being immersed in this liquid. It was pickled. It went in a cucumber, it come out a pickle, you see. And that's the concept that when, when a person is baptized... It is very much a picture and symbolic of the principle that if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation, you see. And so, we see that the method of discipleship here is spending time with people. And the motive of spending time with people is to change them from the inside out. To make us more like Jesus Christ, symbolized by baptism. Then it goes on to say that people were coming to him and being baptized. Verse 24, for John had not yet been thrown or put into prison. Verse 25, now a dispute, a debate, a matter of controversy came about between some of John the Baptist's disciples and a certain Jew concerning ceremonial washing. Literally, ritual purification. point I want to make here is simply this. This is a great example of people who are majoring on minors. Things that really aren't that important, but now all of a sudden, they're all twisted in the wind about. And they're debating with others. And, and I think this is just a reminder to all of us to make sure that if we're going to major on something, if we're going to die on that hill, if you will, that we make sure it's something really, really important. And let the minor things not be what becomes our focus. Because that's exactly what was happening here. So they came to John, John the Baptist, and said to him, Rabbi, the one who was with you on the other side of the Jordan River, they're speaking about Jesus now, about whom you testified, see, he is baptizing and everyone is flocking to him or following him. And they're upset. 
John the Baptist's followers who are still with him, who have not left him to follow Jesus, are upset that John the Baptist is losing his congregation, if you will, to Jesus. We're going to see John the Baptist isn't upset about that. Because it was never about competition. In fact, that was his whole role, was to actually point people to Jesus. He's glad that people are leaving him and following Jesus. So here you have an illustration of people who have become more a follower of another person rather than a follower of God. And here again is something we may need to stop and go, hmm, I've always got to be careful that I'm not following people, that I am following the Lord, you see. Because that's exactly what was happening here. And can I just say that we live in a day and age, even within the church, where there is so much competition between ministries and, and, and churches and whatever, that I'm sure it grieves the heart of God. There should not be competition. There should not be that competitive spirit. But you, you notice this over and over again throughout the Bible. You noticed it with Paul, where some of Paul's followers, if you were, were jealous or envious of some people drawing people away from Paul. And then they were comparing Paul with Apollos and other people, and there was this competition. You even saw it with Jesus. Remember when a couple of his disciples later on in his ministry come up to him and say, Jesus, we found some people healing and doing miracles. Do you want us to shut them down? And Jesus like, uh... If they're not against me, then they're for me. Let, let them alone, you know. So we see this attitude throughout the scriptures. In fact, you know what? I just want to share this one with you because it's probably the first one that I noticed in the Word of God. Go all the way back to the book of Numbers, chapter 11. I want to introduce you to two guys maybe you've never heard of before. Two of my favorite names in the Bible. Eldad and Medad. I could say a few things, but I won't. Numbers chapter 11, verse 26. Even Moses had to deal with this. In other words, Moses' people that that were attending to Moses became uh, jealous and envious and took up an offense for Moses. And Moses was like, are you kidding? I'm not upset about this. I don't want to go into too much background, but basically God was pouring out his spirit on Moses and upon 70 elders in the camp of Israel at this point. And Eldad and Medad were not part of that. So we pick it up here in verse 26 of Numbers 11, where it says, but two men remained in the camp. One's name was Eldad and the other's name was Medad. Can I just say, if one of you would name your sons Eldad, I think that'd be awesome. What a great name. Eldad and Medad. All right. And the Spirit, notice, of God rested on them. Now, they were among those in the registration, but had not gone to the tabernacle. Okay, so they weren't part of the 70, they weren't part of Moses. So they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And then Joshua even, the son of Nun, the servant of Moses, one of his choice young men said, My Lord Moses, stop them! Moses said to him, are you jealous for me? What a great line. What a great question. 
It's exactly what's going on back in the Gospel of John. John the Baptist's disciples were actually jealous for John. John the Baptist wasn't upset of what was going on, but they were. Moses wasn't upset about what was going on, but Joshua and others were. And again, this is a cautionary tale of how we need to be careful that we're not taking up an offense for someone who isn't really bothered by something, and yet it bothers us, you see. Especially if it's God's will, which obviously these two examples are. Moses said, I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put His Spirit on them. Then Moses returned to the camp along with the elders of Israel. So I pointed that out because over and over and over again, this isn't just a solitary incident in the life of John the Baptist. You see this problem throughout history because you're dealing with people. And where you're dealing with people, you always have two things that can happen. You can have people who start to follow people rather than following the Lord. And you have people who are always tempted to take up an offense for someone else, but really the offense wasn't them. We must be careful of those things. Back to John's Gospel, chapter 3. So John replied, and here begins John's clear-cut witness. No one can receive something unless it has been given to him from heaven. Very important point for all of us who serve the Lord and who are in ministry. Here's what John is saying in verse 27. Ministry is a gift. It is not a right. It is a gift. And we need to approach our service and ministry for Christ from that perspective. It's a gift. And it's a gift that God gives, and it's a gift that God can take away. See, for John the Baptist, it was God's plan that he be the forerunner to point people to Christ. But after that, he was done. And he needed to be okay with that, which you're going to see he was. Others weren't, but he was. What does it mean to you as a Christian? To again, ponder, think about, contemplate that our ministry is a gift from God. Think about that this coming week. Then John the Baptist says, You yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Christ, but rather I have been sent before Him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly when he hears the bridegroom's voice. This then is my joy and it is complete. John the Baptist now basically is using some imagery that would again been very clear for the, the Jewish, his Jewish friends. He's saying, look, I'm not the bridegroom. Jesus is. I'm the best man. And in that situation... The best man is happy for the bridegroom. The best man doesn't want to be the bridegroom. The best man is very happy to be the best man, to be his faithful companion and to make all these arrangements and to stand up and to stand for him on that very day. That's his role. And I have accepted my role. And my role is not the bridegroom. My role is the best man. And what these verses are simply teaching as well is that we as Christians have got to learn 
to accept and embrace God's role for us. Not what we think our role should be. Not what others think our role should be. But we need to truly embrace what God's role for us is now. And be okay with that. There are so many Christians who fight where God has them at this point instead of resting in where God has them. And God wants us to trust Him enough to say, look, I have you here for a reason. And I'm growing you and I'm stretching you and all of this. I mean, think about all the examples of this down through Scripture. Think about David with Saul. Think about Joseph in the pit in the prison. And, and God had His way of, of, again, rubbing on the men and women who He was going to use in greater ways, but they had to be willing to be in a position where maybe, again, they wouldn't choose, just like Elijah, but this is where God has placed them. And that's what John the Baptist is saying. Guys, I'm okay with being the best man. In fact, I'm filled with joy He says in verse 29. In fact, he says, this is my occasion for joy in the Greek language. And my joy is literally filled to the top. That's what the word complete means. That there's no room left in the container. That's what the word means in the Greek language. Complete. Filled up complete. There's nothing else. I couldn't put another drop in without it overflowing. John the Baptist says, that's the way I feel about being the best man for Jesus. And notice verse 30. Boy, here's verses that, here's a verse that all of us as Christians need to reflect on, ponder, contemplate. When John says, He must become more important while I become less important. How does that translate in our lives? We could use the word prominent. John the Baptist, this word in the Greek could be John the Baptist. Jesus has to become more prominent. I have to become less prominent. Jesus has to be more visible. I have to be less visible. What's that mean to us? And how do we apply that principle to our lives? Because that's really what it's all about. It's always all about somehow putting Jesus out there and not us. And John the Baptist accepted this role. In fact, think about it. This was a role that was going to end probably in just a short amount of time in his death. Talk about going off the scene. And yet John says, I am so filled with joy, I, I I can't contain myself. So, he is a great example of someone that if when we embrace God's will, whatever that is for us, that's where our joy is found. When we fight and struggle and wrestle with God over where He has us, we will never experience His full joy. We will never be at peace. Where peace and joy lie is at the end of that road where we finally are content with where we are and where God has placed us and the role God has given to us at the time, and we're saying, God, if this is what you have for me, I am filled with joy. This is John the Baptist. He, again, was trying to shut down that jealousy and envy. And I think, too, 
Can you imagine how John the Baptist felt that there were still people following him rather than following Jesus? And even though it doesn't say it here, I've got to believe knowing John the Baptist and his character the way I do, that he probably even got to a point where he looked some of these people in in their face and said, you need to stop following me. You need to go follow Jesus. Because think about it. Think about how this was going to end for those who refused to follow Jesus and instead kept on following John. Notice where this was going to leave them and where this was going to end. They were going to be very sad, very disappointed, probably very frustrated and very discouraged. Why? Because if they continued to follow John the Baptist rather than Jesus, and their expectations was that John was it, what happened after John got beheaded by Herod and he was off the scene? Then what did they do? Then where did they go? Then who did they go to? You see. And that's what happens when we follow people rather than follow the Lord. Eventually, it's going to lead to disillusionment and disappointment. And that's exactly what would have happened to the followers of John the Baptist had they not completely left following him and started following Jesus. So, John says, the one who comes from above. And now he's going to start contrasting Jesus with himself. And he's going to show his followers, guys, gals, this is why Jesus is so much greater than me. First of all, he comes from above. And it's really interesting in the Greek language, the word above means above, above. That's pretty high. He comes from above, above. And he is then superior or above or higher than all. The one who is from the earth, that's me, from the ground, belongs to the earth and speaks about earthly things. And John had it right. Because remember in Genesis 2-7, the Bible says that when the Lord God formed man, He formed us out of what? The dust or soil of the ground. We are but earth. So John the Baptist is saying, I'm of earth. Jesus. He's from heaven. Isn't that make Him greater than me? And then he goes, the one who comes from heaven is therefore superior to all, above all, higher than all. He testifies about what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. John says, it's a shame because people listen to me and I just speak about earthly things because I've never been where Jesus came from. But Jesus He's the Son of God. He came from heaven. And everything that he talks about, man, he knows it because he's been there. He is who he said he is. And yet, very interestingly, people reject his testimony. And yet, they'll accept what I say. And I'm just an earthly man. I'm not the Son of God from heaven. And then he says this, the one who has accepted or received, or given access to his testimony, has confirmed clearly that God is truthful. Very important concept here. First of all, I want to go to the word confirmed. It means to prove, to authenticate, to get to a place beyond doubt. So don't miss what John the Baptist is teaching here. He's saying this. 
that when one is willing to receive the testimony of Jesus Christ, then comes unbelievable confirmation, authentication, proof, and a place beyond doubt. But not the other way around, see. And that's where man gets all mixed up. See, man comes to God, and man says to God, God, I want authentication. I want confirmation. I want proof before I accept your testimony. And God says to man, no, I will not give you proof. I will not give you authentication. I will not give you confirmation until you accept the testimony. Then the confirmation, the authentication, the proof, the getting to a place beyond doubt will be the result of you being willing by faith to receive my testimony. See, that, that's why people today who continue to go, I just need more proof from God. Just keep giving me more proof and I'll get to a place where finally I have enough proof, enough authentication, enough confirmation to accept the testimony. No, it doesn't work that way. That's not the way God designed it. You will forever be on that road seeking more and more confirmation. God's plan is you by faith accept what I say, then you'll have your confirmation. And that's exactly what John the Baptist is saying. And that's why he's saying, guys, I, I am so at a place where I know who Jesus is because I accepted who he was when he revealed himself. And I, you know, I'm at that place. I'm in a good place. You need to get there as well. Then he goes on to say, for the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For he does not give the Spirit sparingly, or literally in piecemeal. In other words, he's saying, throughout the Old Testament, God would give his Spirit, but not in full measure, to the prophets. To Jesus, obviously, because he is God, he has the Spirit of God in full measure. Therefore, everything he says is obviously Spirit-inspired. And so John the Baptist, again, is just reinforcing why they need to start listening to Jesus instead of listening to him. Then he says, the father loves the son. In fact, that word love means dearly loves the son. And this just brings out again, even within the Godhead, the kind of love that God the father, God the son, and God the spirit have for each other. They dearly love each other. You know, sometimes we, we forget that. You know, when we think of the love of God, we think of it as just His love for us, and that's great. We need to certainly think about that. And sometimes we think about our love for God, but we can't miss the fact that the Bible also teaches there's great love of God within the Godhead itself. They dearly love each other. And the Bible says... Because of that, that the Father has placed all things under Jesus, the Son's authority. That's another thing to reflect on. Because that should be a great encouragement to us. By the way, the word authority here can also be translated might, power, activity. So think about what John the Baptist is teaching. 
Think about what the Bible here is teaching. He's already said, Jesus is superior and higher than all. He's above everything in the universe. Then he says, God the Father has placed all things underneath Jesus. Therefore, basically, we all can just see Jesus is at the top. And everything else in the universe is underneath Jesus. Now, the reason that can be encouraging to us as Christians is that that means anything and everything that we come in contact with, that we face, that we're challenged with, that we go through in life is less than Jesus. And just like we shared on Sunday out of the book of Romans, if God is for us, who can be against us? If, if, if Jesus is with us, then just like Paul, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me because there's no one or nothing greater than Christ. He's above all. He's superior. If I keep my focus on the superiority of Christ, then everything else pales in comparison. Everything else is under His authority. Nothing has authority, power, might over Jesus Christ. And we need to remember that in our lives as well. And then he says this, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life. Again, permanently possesses unending, absolute fullness of life. Again, the Greek word for life here is not bios, where we just have the concept of physical life. It's the Greek word zoe, Z-O-E, meaning an absolute fullness of life. Again, the kind of life Jesus talked about when he said, I've come to give my followers abundant life. That's the kind of life. It's a quality of life, not just a quantity of life. Remember, every human being will exist forever. It's just where we will exist. Every human being is going to live forever once we're born. You know, there is no such thing in the Bible as annihilation. Every soul is an eternal soul that will exist without end. So eternal life is primarily not a quantity of how long we live. It's a quality of life that God wants to give us. And we can have and begin to experience that quality of life right here and now. We don't have to wait till we die and go to heaven to begin to experience that kind of life. And then he says, though, the one who rejects the Son, the one who refuses the Son. And, and John the Baptist is basically going to say, this, this is how... This is how important this is to God. That if God was willing to send His very Son, and the Son is superior and above everyone and everything else in the universe, and man just thumbs their nose up at the Son, that is no small thing with God. The one who rejects the Son will not even see Life. The word see here means to become acquainted with. Not to see physically, but to have no acquaintance what it really means to live. Oh, they'll physically be breathing. And it doesn't mean that people who don't have Jesus Christ in their life can't have some kind of enjoyment in their life. But they will never experience the quality of life that only a relationship with Jesus Christ can bring. They will never experience God's best 
for them. They will always fall short of that because they don't have Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to end this by saying, not only will they not see life, but God's wrath remains on them. And let's remember, God's wrath is not defined as some outburst of anger. That's what a lot of people think when they think about God's wrath. God's wrath is simply His settled disposition against all sin. It is where righteousness meets unrighteousness. It's where holiness meets unholiness. You could even, in a sense, say that part of God's wrath is His justice. Which is why God just couldn't wink at sin and pretend like, oh, it's okay. You all just, as human beings, you just come on into heaven and and live forever with me in spite of the fact of this sin. No. That's exactly why Jesus had to die and take the punishment. Because there had to be justice. There had to be punishment. There had to be wrath poured out on sin, or else this holy God, who is separate from everything else in His creation, would cease to be holy if He did not deal with sin. And so John the Baptist is making a very important point. He's saying, realize this, that for those who continue to reject Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God's settled disposition remains on them and will until they turn to Christ. And if they never turn to Christ, there is no statute of limitations on God's wrath. That means His wrath then abides on them throughout eternity. Which is why they are forever separated from God. For they did not want anything to do with God. Therefore God says, fine. You don't want me, then you live for eternity apart from me. You get exactly what you want. You live apart from me. And when a person lives apart from God, everything and anything that makes our existence worthwhile is gone. Because only God and a relationship with Him is what makes living truly worthwhile. When the creation gets connected to our Creator. Leave you with this. Back at the very beginning, Jesus spent time with His disciples. And it's a reminder that Jesus wants to spend time with you and I. He wants us to desire to spend time with Him so that He can rub off on us and make us more like Himself. And Jesus wants His followers to have the desire and the motivation to spend time with each other so that we rub off on each other in positive ways so that we can truly be that iron sharpening iron. So let these truths that Jesus and John the Baptist have brought to the surface tonight, let these things sink in in the days and weeks ahead And let God's Spirit take His Word and change our lives. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You.
for this word. We thank you, God, that when we spend time with you in your word, in your presence, when we spend time worshiping you and coming before you, when we spend time, Lord, with you in prayer, talking to you and sharing our our burdens and letting you speak to us, God, you rub off on us. You forever change who we are and you continually make us more like Jesus. Oh God, give us the desire to spend time with you as much as you desire to spend time with us. And Lord, instill these truths into our minds and hearts from this passage tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, just a reminder before you leave tonight too, besides next Tuesday Pie Fellowship, don't forget that this coming Sunday is communion. So just wanted to remind you guys about that as well. Thanks for being here. We'll